Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Philip Kirkpatrick. Philip is the Regional General Counsel uh, for North America at Rabobank. It's a fantastic discussion, as they all are, of course. We cover a bunch of topics, including some of the early challenges at Rabobank that Philip was dealing with, including how to bring different cultures together, the importance of diversity, equity and inclusion in law firm selection, and some of the challenges around there, as well as alternative fee arrangements too, and how it's really, we both agreed, I think, that it was really up to the GC and the in-house community to drive those changes. That's a fascinating discussion. And also we talked about the importance of um, employee engagement and the strategies around that, creating a, a really transparent and safe environment to have discussions, meaningful discussions and difficult discussions. So, so it's a fantastic discussion. Philip has a wealth of experience, clearly a fantastic leader, So it was an absolute pleasure to have him on. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Philip Kirkpatrick, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, Jim, thank you very much for having me on board. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Now, you've told me, Philip, you've got three quiet boys in the background and you've absolutely assured me they're not going to be, we're not going to hear a peep out of them. So that, that's fantastic parenting. I look forward to um, the silence at your end. Oh, absolutely. We'll see. <laughs> I'm we'll not see. holding my breath on that one. <laughs> You're not holding breath. <laughs> so, Philip, you're currently gen- the, the regional GC for North America at Rabobank. But as I often say with my guests, you weren't always the regional GC uh, for Rabobank. You've had a history before then. Take me right back to the early days. How did you get started in law in the first place? And then a little bit about the early part of your journey. I appreciate the question, Jim. Started off at Truman State and then did political science and then realized I had this passion for legal studies. And so I had the opportunity to go to Syracuse on scholarship and really appreciated that opportunity that the university afforded me. So along the way, worked at a large law firm in St. Louis, Thompson Coburn, and then steadily moved through um, working in-house, doing M&A work. What was the early exposure that told you, you know, I'm interested in this stuff? The early exposure was jumping right into the banking and commercial finance side, diving into deals. So what I found is doing deal work was really what excited me, yep. learning about yep. the company and uh, what they do. Yep, yep, yep. Do we call that a bit of a deal junkie? Do we, do we, yes. Is that what we call <laughs> Yes, and that's followed me throughout my career. So Is that right? The highs and the lows of those. You need the next fix coming along, the, the next deal. So tell me, okay, early days, what kind of stands out for you as kind of formative in your career or the career path or some of the, you know, the, the key, perhaps even the, maybe the crossroads? What, what stands out for you when you look back in the early part of your career? 
Yeah, I think uh, the early part of my career was really starting at the law firm and being challenged towards perfection. So the difference between the law firm was being an expert and being perfect and then moving in-house more of a, what I'll call a triage doctor. You didn't have the time to be almost perfect. You had to advise the CEO or the GC or whoever it was, give them practical advice and move on to the next thing. Uh, So that was really the the formative years for me, understanding what my client or key stakeholder needed and executing on it. So um, what I realized is we had to be right, but we didn't have to always be perfect. It's interesting, isn't it? And that's that's a common theme we certainly hear on this show. So if you, two questions. Firstly, if you put yourself back to young Philip in that law firm, would you have done anything kind of differently? What advice do you give young Philip? in his early law firm training days? The advice I would give would be listen to what the client expectations are and fully understand what those expectations are and the scope of what the client's requesting, not thinking, being afraid to ask the question, the question before the question. So at the end of the day, what does the client want you to solve for versus generating a memo that's very detailed and researching everything to the end and then billing the client for it. So I would advise understanding the question. It's funny, isn't it? Those early law firm days where you're, in a sense, you feel like you're measured by the perfection of your product, the artwork that you produce um, out there for the world to see or internally and externally and pouring hours over that product uh, to then voila moment of release into the world it's a very different world than that that kind of that early narrow perspective oh absolutely and what i try to do now is say i expect this to take three to five hours two to six or whatever that threshold is because then it really drills into what the expectations are because i felt as a young associate I didn't know if the project would take me 30 hours, 40 hours, but now as a more senior attorney, I realized I kind of have a good understanding of how long things should take. Not always, but. When you're speaking to law firms and when you're kind of setting, um, setting the tone for what your expectations are and your department's expectations, what are the key messages you're delivering? Key messages is understanding the scope, understanding how I want the matters to be staffed. Because one of the key yeah. messages for us is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yep. So we have the ability to control through our spend dollars who is staffed on our matters. And so one of the big pushes we have is we want people sitting around the table to have a different life experience than us. And yep. so my expectations are really around DE&I and really bringing in different perspectives into our matters to get a better outcome. Because uh, I can look at things from my life perspective, but I want others to really challenge the norm on solutions. And, and tell me, how how has the message landed and how has it actually been executed on? Is there, and I expect there's a range of responses too, depending upon the law firms and the stage they're at, but I'd be interested in your views on that. Yeah, so a majority of our panel firms are Mansfield certified yeah. Um, and so there we really push it where we've noticed it's in the execution. So um, ensuring that the associate partner mix is appropriate 
and we have diverse talent working our matters. So very good in the presentation side saying we're going to do it from an execution perspective, not always very good. It drops off, does it? It does. And so what yeah. we're starting to push is looking back at the end of the year to see how the staffing mix is and yeah. then really pushing the firm to either correct it or have some sort of discount that's associated with it. So leveraging yeah. our dollars to, to make change because I, I think yeah. it's an important thing. And what is your sense, Philip, of the rate of change that's taking place? Again, is it mixed? Is it you're happy with it? Is it going to take a, an exceptionally long time um, to really get right? I, I'd be interested in your views because you, um, you and I know a lot of this is kind of institutional, <laughs> if you like. Um, if the talent hasn't been grown over time, it's really hard to snap one's fingers and then suddenly have diverse talent. So I'm interested in your views on on the rate of change. I would say the intention is positive. The rate of change is slower than I believe my team would like it. I don't know the correct answer, but if we can leverage and make a difference, even if it's slowly, uh, as a legal profession, we have to. Uh, because there's talent everywhere, and we just need to bring that talent into the firms. The power is always on the demand side, and certainly we've seen a significant focus and emphasis on the last few years to ensure a much better balance across D&I. But, but it's not a snap your fingers, because institutionally, if the organisation, if the law firms have been a little bit late to the party in growing that talent, that does, doesn't happen overnight. So... I'm always interested in how much patience um, the general counsel community has. Um, that's it's waning. <laughs> it's waning. So it's, it's waning from our perspective. Uh, we want to effectuate change quicker. And so, as you know, we leverage a pursuit platform on uh, budgets, and then we require DEI information within every project we work on because I, I want to see that. I want to see the change. And so I think it's up to us uh, on the GC level, I empower my team. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We're you know, super proud that, that we can kind of help institutionalize that at, the, at what I always call the buying end, right up front when you're engaging the law firms, making it very clear what your criteria are and how important DE&I is in that criteria. And I've always said that power is in the hands of the buying community, the general counsel. Uh, and I have to say, it, particularly in the last 18 months or so, it has been the momentum that I can see build in that community is being really kind of inspirational. <laughs> like anything, it's slower than everyone really wants. There are pockets of excellence and there are you know, pockets where it's just not moving fast enough. I, I totally agree there. And, and certainly as an ag lender, uh, being spread out across the U.S. and some of our collections matters are in rural communities. The DE&I side's a little more difficult. More challenging, yeah. New York City, less so. St. Louis, the larger communities. Um, it doesn't mean there's not diverse talent in the rural communities. It's just uh, uh, ensuring that the law firms are searching. There's talent out there, but it hasn't made its way to all of the law firms it just hasn't whether it's the top 200 or the even beyond that it just it's going to take time but um uh, as i said 
the, the single most important influence and power um, is in the buying community. So, okay. Uh, so I think you've now been, I'm going to move straight over to Rabobank. You joined Rabobank AgriFinance. That was back in 2013. And then in 2017 is when you landed your current position as the Regional General Counsel of North America. So tell me when you just started, so that was about five years ago. Tell me something about the early challenges then, because then I'm going to kind of contrast that to, to the challenges you've got today. What were some of the early challenges and perhaps some of the, uh, the early wins too in those yes. first few years? Yeah, so in the first few years when I took on my role, we took uh, a couple legal entities and merged them together. So we basically created a what we'll call a corporate service model. So we took the wholesale and ruled legal teams and pushed them together. So we were able to leverage some of the synergies across those teams. So the early challenges were we had two different cultures, one group that was very technical and very collaborative. So both were very collaborative. And then one group that I'll call jack of all trades. So uh, they were able to swing and pick up whether it was litigation or lending work. And certainly on the wholesale side, they need to be very super technical because on the wholesale business side, we were regulated by the CFTC, NFA. We had a broker dealer, a swap dealer. We had to deal with the Fed. So a lot of regulatory experience. So our early wins were really setting a tone where we talked about kind of what I'll call our three commitments where we, we talk honestly and transparently. We treat people with dignity and respect, and we take 100% accountability for impact on the business and people. So we started with the core there and really instilled that across the board. And so we had a lot of chair shifts and changes within the team. But over a few years, we really built a strong culture around just our commitment to people and collaboration. So those were some of the early wins. The early challenges were moving the chairs and so what I found is when uh, we shift who people report into or um, other, I guess, responsibilities, people get nervous. And so one of the things I had to build, and uh, Peter Linscone talks about this uh, in his book on uh, the five dysfunctions of team, you have to build trust. And so uh, that was one of the key things is building trust and not running before you can walk. So those are things we talked about early on. So, and what are some of the, I love that because kind of bringing teams, cultures together, building trust, the, um, getting that cohesion right, which, which can be really, I think, one of the most challenging things. What are some of the strategies, Philip, you use to, to, to do that, to get into a position where you can build trust and people aren't kind of fearful for their jobs, um, uh, their futures, because that's what, you know, change is always uncomfortable. And when change is, there's the prospect of this might not work for me and I might not be around and I might not be here. That's, that's a tough environment. We've all been through it at some point in our career. Tell me about some of the strategies to build that trust and get through those, you know, those, those really challenging times. One of the things I leveraged is there's a strategy, the first 100 days. And so uh, as part of that, you spend the first 30, 60 days observing, listening, and not making change. And so 
early in my career, I tried to execute change too quickly. And so what I learned is listen first, build trust, and then transparency. And so what I did is I, ex I outlined a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And I shared that. You and, shared that. Uh, that's a little scary. And then I, I met with key stakeholders within my team and within different domains and said, if we were starting over without uh, names in the blocks uh, on the org chart, how would we structure our team and why? And so that was pretty liberating to say, don't worry about which block you fit in. It's just um, better understanding where we can leverage your skills and knowledge. And then really transparency. I know oftentimes we try to uh, not always share things because we're worried about um, how people react to those things. And what I've learned is if I don't give people the opportunity to know the information, I can't understand how they're going to react. So it's uh, transparency is key. And it comes through our engagement scans where you know, we have to have more transparency across the organization. And so transparency drives engagement. If you have happy and engaged people, they stay. And so one of the things we've been fortunate to is to have a lower attrition rate. And I think that's largely because we have really good, solid people on the team and we communicate well. I can barely think of an occasion of when I said to myself, I've been too transparent on that one. That That's to, that's bitten me on the behind because I was too transparent. I, you don't say that. Often you reflect back and you go, you know what, if I actually just was more open, got the feedback, was more transparent about the issues we were facing, um, the challenges, uh, then I would have had collaborate, you know, a more collaborative, open, and genuine discussion uh, I, I about 100%. the challenges. And yeah. it empowers people. You get yeah. to feel how you feel. And then yeah. you get time to reflect. Some people take more time to reflect and then want more information. And I found um, our, our chief risk officer says, bring people along the way. Yeah. If we share that information and, and follow those ideals, it, it makes it maybe not always easier in the beginning, but yeah. uh, it makes it easier when people understand the vision or the plan uh, yeah. to, to bring them along. Plus, like I said, it's empowering for the employee. I always appreciate it. It's scary. It is. You're absolutely right. Um, but like I said, very rarely do you go back. A and certainly also as a recipient, nobody really ever said, I, I, I wish my leader wasn't as transparent with me. <laughs> nobody ever uttered those, <laughs> I, I uttered bet, yeah. those words. <laughs> as long as you're transparent, I, we talk about respect. Yeah. Yep. Honesty, transparency. But you have to have respect of the people yeah. and how you deliver the yeah. message. And that it dovetails into what I talk about a lot, and people heard this, but you know that environment which is safe, in which you can actually have those conversations, and that all ties into uh, respect but safety. Workplace safety in the ability to be able to voice opinions, have discussions, have debates. You know, they call it psychological safety. It is so... It's hard to do, but it is so important. And it's so liberating for teams um, and the organization as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we talk about where you have an environment where you can be your authentic self. It's funny, I, I heard something recently 
where somebody distinguished between the environment to be your authentic self, which is absolutely where you want to be, but someone said, but you don't need to bring your full self to the workplace. There are some parts of you that don't need to be there. Um, and, and there are some decisions that are made which are not and often not reflective of you as a person, as an individual, as your full self, which is different from your authentic self. So, um, uh, but I think it's a good call out. If you are able to create, create that environment where people can bring their authentic selves, and to me it's all leadership, because it's top down, if that's what people see, that's what people can then bring. And I found if you're able to be your authentic self, you can focus on work and just uh, share your ideas in open, yeah. safe environment without yeah. uh, criticism of the idea. It's hard work being inauthentic. It, it, it is. It, it's not only kind of wrong, it's hard work. And because your energies are channeled um, in the wrong direction or on the wrong things. Let's talk about the current challenges. 2022, as you look forward the next 12, 24 months and even beyond, what, what do you see? What are your challenges at, at, at the, to the extent that you can share them at the Rabobank level, um, legal department, and then perhaps more broadly around the profession? Um, I'd be interested in your views there. Yeah, at the bank or at the legal department level, one of the things we're constantly looking at uh, is insourcing versus outsourcing. So it's the appropriate mix of insource staff versus outsource staff. So we take a very simple uh, approach, which is just a pyramid approach to go the highly wrote mundane work. If there's an opportunity for someone to do it faster, better than us at a lower rate, outsourcing. The middle work is where I find our attorneys do the best, which is working closely with the business, driving BAU environment strategic type change. And then at the top's the highly technical to the bet the company type litigation, tax work. And so we try to stay in the sweet spot there. And so it's a constant challenge of when I look at my outside counsel spend versus what I'm spending on our employees. Is it the right mix? And are we delivering value to the business? So, um, and then always is how are we too lean to really sustain our ability to provide meaningful advice to the business? So those are some of our challenges. And then one of the things is keeping employees engaged. So being a rather flat legal organization is, are there career development opportunities? And when I say career development opportunities, it's not promotion. It's am I providing our team uh, the ability to gain skills, knowledge, and experience um, to develop their careers, whether it's with us or someplace else. So I always look at my role as how do I you know, break down the roadblocks for the our team to either be successful here or to move on to the next job. So. We've had a few folks move on to you know, GC or higher level roles, which for me is one of the best things I could uh, help be part of. Yeah, uh, that's, because... that's, a, that's a win. I, I, love, I love those stories and I love seeing it you know, out of you know, people that I've worked with and, uh, and help mentor. It's just, it's, um, and as I say this a bit too, as you get a little bit older, that's the stuff that gets more and more important. <laughs> um, less about you, more about 
how you've enabled and facilitated and made an impact on, on others in their careers. I 100% agree there. We talk about servient leadership and how do we, we help other people. And if you look out for other people, you get the trust and the loyalty that um, you know, cash compensation can't buy. So, um, so that's the other piece is career development and just ensuring our team's engaged. Um, so uh, we've seen in the news a great migration. And fortunately for us, uh, we haven't lost too many people. Um, but I think it's because we have great team members, great um, you know, team leads. And so they make all the difference to retain our, our people. And then candidly, we have a, a great executive team that I think really leads and inspires as well. So uh, we're fortunate there. And on the on team engagement, um, has there been any shift since um, or during and since COVID on the the way in which your team has been working? Has there been a shift to work from home? Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and perhaps the, the impact or some of the challenges that might have raised. Yeah, so I'll give a little context. So uh, we were fortunate enough, our CEO uh, was very focused on the health and welfare of our employees. So we were one of the first groups to start working from home uh, or one of the first organizations to start working from home. And so that initial shift was a little clunky because we're so used to the physical human interaction that we missed a lot of that. But over time, what I found is when the team's able to fulfill their task or, or duties during their time, it helps them be more engaged at home with their family, which in turn, I get better, we get better production at, um, in the office. And so we have a hybrid model where roughly 30% of the time we're in the office. Now, when we're in the office, we focus on team collaboration. So I don't want people to come in like the traditional law firm days and show up uh, for FaceTime, as I called it. But I want purposeful, meaningful contact with the business and collaboration. So uh, don't come in to jump on a, a Zoom call or a Teams day. call, yeah. come in. Yeah, come in, leave your door open and let's collaborate. So that was a big shift. But then the tougher piece was when you have new employees. So you have a culture um, with your existing team, but how do you bring the new employees on? And so that takes a lot more of the human touch and ensuring that they're getting everything they need from uh, the team and feel part of the culture. And so that that's been a work in progress. But we've uh, onboarded a few folks uh, over the past two years where they're fully remote. Uh, but it's one of the things we spend a lot of time on is ensuring we hire the right people. So we move slow to hire, uh, but it's purposeful. And we try to, as I always say, if you, you hire good people, you can teach them the skills. Um, it's, you, you can't teach people to be good people. And look, I think we're still in the experimental phase uh, of the models. Um, and, and typically it is the hybrid models now that I've been hearing about um, GCs and their teams, but you know, even beyond that across the workforce um, globally, I think we are in an experimental phase and we don't know yet. <laughs> and um, you've seen uh, that shift yeah. with Google, Facebook, Apple, and what's best yep. for the employees and the business. Yep. It's going to change again, I'm certain of that. Yeah, I think we're still all working it out. 
aware still all and I I've said before too that it is it is different for the different stages in your career there are different impacts of all uh, of all the models in the different stages of your career so I think the challenge ahead of us is working out at the employee level what is best certainly for the organization but for the employees at their individual levels because the answer to a graduate may be very different to the answer to, you know, an assistant general counsel. More junior experienced attorneys, I think, need the opportunity to learn from someone that's been doing it uh, yep. longer. And to bounce the ideas, tying back to your, your first question is, um, I owe a lot of indebtedness to the you know, the more experienced attorneys taking the time to explain things. Yeah. And so, and being in an environment where questions were okay, so, Totally appreciate some of the partners I worked with just saying it's okay to ask a question. No. Yep. And they always said, and we hear it all the time, no question is dumb. It's the only dumb question is the one not asked. It is. And again, that's that's also come back to that environment point. And are you, is the organization, is the leadership truly able to create that environment where everybody feels like um, every question is a good question? Yeah. Um, uh, and especially the, the young you are on that, that it's hard to get there. Um, but if they see the, um, those older or more experienced around them feeling absolutely comfortable with asking any questions, then... From a client perspective, I want the associate to ask the question because they, they think oftentimes they're afraid to have to respond with, I don't know. And I would rather someone go, I don't know, but I'll find you the answer versus best answer is look i'm not sure but here's how i'm going to find the answer <laughs> totally agree now uh, philip i can see your time at rabobank you won a few awards so you're clearly multi-talented the corporate counsel award the acc value champion award top legal innovation awards for law firm business change so there's a there's a bit of that give me a theme or a couple of themes which kind of underlying um those kind of innovation related awards yeah and so a lot of those were just trying to think differently so i was uh, i those i wouldn't say are individual awards um the team uh helped us get there so i may have accepted the award but i think it's a testament to the team first and so really focusing on innovation and change within the legal department specifically around AFAs. That's why I really enjoyed the pursuit platform because how do we change the billing model of law firms? So I think the more senior and experience we get, we kind of know how long things should take. And so what I worked with Thompson Coburn on is how do we measure turnaround times? How do we measure how long things take? And then controlling for different uh, variables. And so if I turn this variable, is it going to add more time, slow things down? And I was fortunate enough to work with our finance team and building kind of a, I'll call it a model and trying to predict out how long each type of loan transaction would take. And then leveraging that information is we're trying to partner with the firm to say, here's how long I think this will take for each transaction. And then really, because the biggest risk a firm takes is it takes way too long and they lose money. Uh, and so really trying to think differently about how we work with our law firms and how we leverage them. So 
we focus more on the partnership, not wins and losses on each transaction. And it's back to trust and transparency. So there we just, we try to tackle problems with a different perspective. And I think that's kind of the thematic piece and then really leveraging numbers and stats to prove it. Yeah. And it falls into, for me, for, you know, the, the alternative fee arrangements or the AFA's modeling falls into the, the same kind of category we were talking about there, or the same market dynamics that we're talking around DE and I, it is all demand driven. So if the general counsels and the in-house, their in-house teams are demanding from the market, something alternative to just hourly billing. And if they're being provided with the tools and the skills and the strategies to be able to come up with alternative fee arrangements that work for both parties and provide that certainty, it's got to be demand driven. So, you know, kudos to you and the team for being part of that market push because we're seeing it right now. I know it's been in the, people have been talking about it for a couple of decades now, but but, but I, we've certainly seen more momentum than I think has uh, existed in the past. And I think it's been a combination of technology that's available as well as um, um, the essentially the forces of the general council community coming together and actually really um, elevating the discussion around it and making it clear to the law firm partners. It's an important initiative and it provides the savings and cost certainty that, that, that the in-house teams are looking for. That's why I look for, and you have to have the partnership with the firm to go, if I've done something to push the billing way yep. too expensive to where you're losing money, I should pay for yep. it. Yep. And it's gotta be that, that trust level that I'll do the right thing. Yeah. And that's where we've tried to really change uh, that model as well. And then we spend a lot of extra time uh, around the scope to make sure the scope's clear so there's no yep. surprises. Um, yeah, that's the focus. Get the scope right and work out what the cost drivers are. So then once they're defined, you can see if the cost drivers have changed. Um, that's fine. It, it can't be a, um, look, Philip, it took longer than we expected. That can't be, the, we've heard it for years, but that can't be the justification for, so we're going to be here for more. To me, it's all about the discipline, the scoping. You're absolutely right, getting better and better at the scoping and then just identifying what are the assumptions we're going to make, the cost drivers, and if they change, we know, because um, we've set up front you know, what, what the outcome will be if they do change. So I think it's just a discipline that the industry hasn't focused on in the past, but is certainly focusing more and more on, on currently. I, I agree there too. And then from a firm perspective, if you like we deal with a lot of firms that are super efficient they've learned how to do it and they should be able to extract the value there absolutely from if i'm super good at what i do and can do it in four hours versus everyone else does it in 10 then you should yep. get the incremental get value the, yep uh, agree fantastic um gonna wrap up with some of my favorite questions i got a few of them hardest thing you've ever done philip that you prepared to share with us personal professional whatever it might be um, uh, wow, that's a, a good question. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things I did, gosh, would have been one of the companies I worked for went through a bankruptcy and then a sale. Yep. Yeah. And so that was about two and a half years of really getting outside of my comfort zone and learning a new skill and being willing to at times fail. And yep. so I was fortunate enough to get 
to work with our CEO on some what I'll call budget cuts and other activities. I actually won an award within the organization for, I think the team I worked with, we saved about $89 million of cost. And so that, that was transformative for me because it was at the time I was finishing up my MBA and, and as a legal professional, we we think about the legal side, but not always the financial side. So it was a mind shift. So, and I, I failed at times and it's tough to admit that you fail yeah. at something, but at the end of the day, I stuck with it and I was fortunate enough to have a GC and a CEO that really gave me the opportunity to be uncomfortable. And I think when you're uncomfortable, you can really spread your wings and learn new things. I love when the hardest things are the ones because they typically are uh, where you achieve the most personal and professional growth. Um, And you might've heard me say before, you've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's the discomfort or being uncomfortable that's that's the growth zone the the growth zone unfortunately doesn't exist in the comfort zone the two don't overlap all that often i think the more that we can get just people whether it's in their personal professional lives comfortable um, with doing hard things and recognizing they're going to fail but recognizing it and having the experience of that that's where the growth is then the more opportunities for growth. I call it failing forward, or there's a book on failing forward. And it's how you're going to fail all the time, but how do you learn from it? What have you spent too much time worrying about in the past, which on reflection is not time well spent? Yeah, I, I think worrying about uh, other people's perceptions yep. uh, of me. And so... It's just being comfortable on who you are and, um, you know, maintaining your core values. And so I think oftentimes we worry about what other people think we should be doing versus just doing what we know is the right thing always. So it's a worrying about others, I think. And so if we get comfortable in who we are, and I've learned that over time that certainly we need to be reflective and take in input, but that input don't always take the negative so yeah. i spent a lot of time going not what the positive praise was but focus more on well someone gave me this uh yeah. negative feedback and feedback's a gift if done correctly yeah and it's focusing on the negative uh, yeah. on the feedback so. we, we, we never it, it just it screams so much louder doesn't it that anything that was positive it, it's it's human nature um uh it's great advice, though. It's advice that I actually give to my adult children. I often say, look, I can guarantee you the time you're spending um, thinking about how someone else is thinking about you is much less time than they're actually thinking about you. <laughs> I, I completely agree. And a, a friend of mine said, if you think about it more than twice, just ask the person. Yeah. 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 It's scary. A- anything that keeps you up at night, now apart from those three lovely boys uh, girls. <laughs> you beat me to the the first comment aside from the three boys what keeps me up at night um not a whole lot anymore it's ensuring that um, i am being a proactive leader and thinking about what the f- the future strategy is versus tomorrow and yeah. so 
I always think about from a legal perspective, do we have um, the right legal structure resurfacing the, the needs of the business? So it's not one thing in particular, it's um, the constant self-reflection. So the yeah. constant challenge. So am I doing enough to be successful and um, making the right change and leading? So nothing in particular, but yeah. more broad concepts. Anything you're looking forward to? Uh, nice vacation with my sons, but nice. um, yeah. So the thing I always look forward to is when I see deals close, uh, is a deal junkie, uh, and where the team gets recognized for all their hard work. So our organization's very good about recognizing employees and the hard work. So I look forward to seeing that yep. because that really fills my bucket back up because you know i work with a lot of great people uh, and so that's what i look forward to is the, the recognition for all the hard work that my team does or our team i shouldn't say my yeah uh, sometimes I, I often say life is pretty simple someone to love something to do something to look forward to <laughs> You know, whether it's the enjoyment of getting out of work, professional growth, the holiday you got coming up, you've got to have something um, that you want to wake up for and you're looking forward to. So um, last question, the time between you wake up and you check your emails, how long? Oh, you're probably going to hate this answer. My phone's next to my bed. So being a global company, it's probably 25 seconds. 25, I was going to say, I reckon it's under 30 seconds. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> we have, uh, I work a lot with our global colleagues, and I know there's this, depending on the, the time, six to seven hour time difference, and I'm constantly worried um, I yeah. need to respond because someone else is waiting for me. But then, like you, I then get up, and then I always enjoy CrossFit, going for a walk, and then... You know, I may call someone to respond, but it's it's pretty short order, sadly. Philip Kirkpatrick, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute blast having a, a fantastic discussion with you, Ivan. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I had a fantastic time. I really appreciate the partnership we built with you and the conversation today. Uh, I appreciate it. Fantastic, Phil. Thanks very much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>